Today's conversation is brought to you by Brotherhood Mutual Insurance Company, a leading national provider of ministry-focused insurance and services. Headquartered in Fort Wayne, Indiana, Brotherhood Mutual has a heart for serving the church and keeping ministries thriving. For more information, visit brotherhoodmutual.com. They've heard this good news and, and they want it. And, and, and it's, it's not being an American, it's being a Christian that, that really captures their hearts. Today's conversation is the podcast of the National Association of Evangelicals. I'm your host, Walter Kim, NAE president. In these conversations, we seek to help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. Dr. Gus Reyes, Director of Hispanic Partnerships for Dallas Baptist University, helps us to think deeply about the unique contributions of our Hispanic brothers and sisters to our community and world. I am grateful to God for him and for this conversation. Here it is. Dr. Reyes, thank you for joining us. It's a joy to talk with you. See, it's glad to be glad glad to be with you all. I mean, what a what a privilege, what a blessing, and I'm here to share whatever I can. Thank you. Well, you know, before we get to this broader narrative around Hispanic contributions to our communities, um, of which there are many, uh, I'd love to get to know you a bit more personally. Share a little bit about your journey. You have deep connections to Texas, to the Baptist community. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, thank you for the question. Um, I, uh, I do have deep, deep roots and connections to the Baptist community, uh, predominantly in Texas, California, and Tennessee. Um, I received Christ as my Savior and was baptized in a very small Spanish uh, Baptist church in San Bernardino, California. And um, I met my wife at a Primera Iglesia Bautista, Dallas, the, the Mexican Baptist Church there in Dallas. And I met her there doing a revival. And um, shortly after that, we got married and I went to Southwestern Seminary where I got my doctorate. And thanks to God, I had the honor and privilege of being the first American-born Hispanic to get a doctorate from that, you know, at the seminary. And uh, we served churches uh, across Texas, a um, little bit in Tennessee. Uh, I just had such an honor to work for Lifeway Christian Resources for about 13 years. And then the Lord allowed us to come back to Texas and where I served the uh, Baptist uh, Convention of Texas for about 21 years. And so now I get to serve Dallas Baptist University and um, uh, in this Hispanic partnership uh, program that we have. And so, yeah, I've just been working with, around, and, and, and for, and serving Baptist churches um, for quite a, quite a long time. Um, uh, I've also worked very closely to Dr. Sam Rodriguez in the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference, and that has been such a joy uh, in working with him. He's quite a visionary leader, and so that opens the door to speaking to the leaders of about 42,000 Hispanic evangelical churches across the country. Thank you, Dr. Reyes. Clearly, you have a, a compelling personal narrative. Uh, as well as being a trailblazer um, educationally and with the kind of ministry that you've been pursuing. We're going to talk a bit about that, but I I'd love to begin with some basics. Um, can you talk a bit about the distinctives between the terms Latino and Hispanic? We've, we've heard them used uh, interchangeably at times or in different contexts, a preference for one or the other. Um, give us a little insight about that. 
Right. These terms encompass people whose heritage is from is from or directly come from Spanish speaking countries. And so um, my understanding is that in the academic environment and academic literature, the terms are used nowadays pretty interchangeably. Uh, there might be some regions in the United States where some folks prefer Latino and some folks refer Hispanic. But it just seems like nowadays those terms are, are really interchangeable uh, in the press and other places. And so um, uh, there is a distinction in the, set, in the sense that they, they represent people who come from Spanish-speaking countries. But beyond that, I mean, nowadays, they just tend to be used interchangeably. Okay. Well, I may be slipping back and forth then in our conversation between the okay. two. Um, Regardless of the terminology, Hispanic or Latino, the, the community itself is incredibly diverse uh, in the U.S. What, what are some of the complexities that uh, we should know? Well, that's a great question. First of all, let me tell you, um, I spent really the last 30 years really trying to have a, a greater understanding of those complexities. And one of the most significant things that surfaced during those years and even today is, is an understanding of the difference between a first-generation Hispanic, somebody born in another country, or brought here when they're very young, who has close ties to the mother country, so to speak, who speaks Spanish in the home, who prefer to worship in Spanish. Um, titles are important, formality is important, a um, lot, lot of distinction there versus the assimilated or what I call third generation Hispanic, which is somebody that might be more like me who prefers English. Uh, there's a lot of uh, third generation Hispanics who worship in English, who, who may have difficulty with Spanish or not speak it at all, maybe not even understand it at all. And so you have this range of first generation, which is which is one extreme group of folks in terms of one area, and then all the way to the, to the opposite uh, of, of third generation Hispanics. And so how you minister to them and how you reach them for, for Christ and, and how you market to them, uh, those things are very unique. And that, that's part of the complexity. What's also part of that complexity is that um, uh, we have generally we have relatives or family in both groups. And so and so and, and both groups tend to have or certain attitudes toward each other and, and, and have to figure out how to navigate those relationships. Uh, but we have family. Uh, still have fam I still have family in Mexico, and 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 uh, we speak to them and, and relate to them, but they they want to talk in Spanish, and um and we, and so we we are able to communicate, etc. But ministering to that first generation and ministering to the third generation can be two different approaches and very complex, and they all care about each other. But those those are to me that's the most significant distinctive. Yeah, that's so so fascinating. Um. I mean, I match it on to my own experience uh, coming from an immigrant family. Right. And I noticed that you went from th first to third. Uh, what about the second generation? I mean, that is in my own experience, right? My parents immigrated from Korea. I was born in the States, but I have uh, children now who are third generation. Yes. Uh, so I am curious about the second generation within the Hispanic community. You, you know, I would say the second generation is the bridge building group. 
They're the cultural navigators. Uh, they're the ones who get the letter uh, from the school district, maybe saying that they're doing really good or maybe that there are problems. And they're the ones that translate that, they're cultural translators to their parents. And they, they're the ones that probably help explain things that are in English to their parents or processes that, that the parents don't really understand, don't understand why they do that. I mean, you know, you know, you might know that many folks who come here from other countries Though in those countries, education is just to the sixth grade. That's really all you need, or that's all they can do, depending on their um, level of income, et cetera. And so when they come to this country, uh, they don't understand why we would have something called middle school or high school. And and that again, that first generation folks who come from another country uh, come from countries who where the government controls the schools. So the concept of independent school districts, that's a that's a new concept uh, where you can go and meet with teachers and you can go and talk to a principal. Those are like foreign ideas. And so, again, it's up to the second generation child to translate some of that concept while trying to navigate their own life in, in this new new world, et cetera. And so those are great challenges for, for our kids. But that second generation, I think they're gold and they translate the culture, trying to understand how this America is to their families. Hmm. You know, you're describing a situation in which there are just naturally going to be generational differences in any yes. kind of family unit, but they're... Yep very specific uh, dynamics that are introduced uh, in what you've described. Uh, and you've also talked about, you know, acclimation to culture and uh, and then hearkening back to your own uh, story of coming to faith in Christ. I, I want to put some of these pieces together and, and ask, um, you've, you've worked with this biblically informed approach to cultural engagement and social change. Right. particularly when it comes to youth. So what are some of the important features that um, we need to know about in this particular work of integration, of faith, of cultural engagement, of social change, of these youth dynamics that oh, yeah. you're describing in a very specific unfolding of first, second, third generation, and, and even more generations after that? Correct, correct. Well, um, I think, you know, to start off, I would say that, you know, we embraced God's word. And there's a particular verse, there's several, uh, but there is a particular verse that just stands out. And that's Micah 6, 8, where, the, where God's word says that we need to do justice, that we need to love mercy or love kindness, and where we need to walk humbly before our God. And so that's the uh, that's our North Star, if you will. And so understanding uh, those verses, uh, you know, we're interested in, in our youth are interested in justice, what is right, what is fair. They're keen on seeing differences of how people are traded, traded, um, treated because of their skin color or because of their last name, et cetera. They're, they're very much aware of that. And they're very much aware of how immigrants and others are treated. So they're looking for people of faith to stand up and, and to be the, 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 people who follow the Jesus agenda, you know, while they might respect the donkey, they might respect the elephant, you know, the, the, the North star for believers becomes the lamb's agenda. And so they're keen on seeing how Christians, Hispanics or otherwise, how believers live out their faith. Are they being fair? They're being just, how do they treat um, immigrants? How do they treat uh, strangers? How do they treat captives, the blind and vulnerable people? Youth are looking are looking at, at how we model our faith and how we live it out. At the same time, they're growing up in a culture 
where there's this growing gap between parents and teenagers. It's kind of like, I'm an adult now. Don't tell me what to do. I don't need to hear from you. I can make my own decisions. Uh, that's contrary to a lot of the cultures our kids come from in all of those countries. And, and so uh, Dr. Richard Ross, who is a dear friend, a professor of youth ministry, he, he recognized this gap. And so working together with him, we, we put together a, um, a process to help parents and teenagers, you know, reconnect their hearts so that at a time in their lives when teenagers need to hear God's wisdom from their parents, those reconnected hearts would be able to have a process to, to allow them to reconnect and to share with each other and, and to get that godly wisdom. So uh, so you have a culture that's kind of causing our kids to separate and make their own decisions, which is fine, but maybe ignoring parents. Uh, well, how do you do justice in that? How do, how do you love kindness? You know, And so there's an important uh, element of helping parents and Christian leaders especially with Hispanic group, uh, to help teach their kids about how to connect their hearts with parents. And so we're excited about that. You know, we, we're really working toward that. A lot of the first generation parents are concerned that their kids might be becoming too American, if you will, uh, you know, with some of those values or some of that independence. And so, you know, Hispanic families, first generation, they're group oriented. They they like to keep us kids home. And if you have to go to college, go to college, college close by, don't leave. Um, but again, if you think about the youth and students, you know, they're looking to see how their parents treat non-Spanish speakers. How do they speak? How do they, how do, what is their attitude toward Americans who don't even speak the language that they speak and how do they treat them? So they're looking for models of faith that are consistent with God's word, all coming back to do justice, you know, love mercy and walk humbly. And, and so what we're trying to say to them is that, you know, if you just take a minute to think about all that God has done for you and to give thanks for that. How do you not walk humbly before an ever-loving God who's done so much for you, brought you to this country, has helped you to have a life, a career, a work, an income, and a church where you can worship? And so all of that comes together when you think about cultural engagement and social issues. There are many, but first, you know, we want to make sure that we understand how God's word lead us, leads us and how Jesus' behavior while he was here, and even since how he guides us through his spirit to treat other people. Dr. Reyes, you've given us so much to chew on in that response. Um, I want to pick up on a couple of strands of things where you've uh, talked about, uh, on the one hand, this commitment, the Micah 6-8 commitment uh, to, to justice and kindness and humility. And your own personal narrative, however, harkens back to a revival in which you came to faith in Christ. And so there, there's these two parts of, of action and expression with social issues, but also personal transformation. If I'm hearing you correctly, to follow Jesus incorporates kind of this more comprehensive approach. Is, is, is that what you're <clears throat> describing? And then I want to come to something else. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the beauty of the gospel, it, it's just good news. And so it is transformative. Uh, first generation, in fact, most Hispanics that I know, you know, their, their top five concerns relate to education and how to help their children get educated. Well, first, I'd like to educate them in knowing who Jesus is and what he's done for them and how to be a disciple of Christ. And that that transforms them on so many levels. And so to me, that's that's exciting. Mm. 
The second strand that you uh, raise that I want to pull a little bit more on is this whole notion of culture. And you've already alluded to a couple of features uh, of Latino culture. Um, but I, I would like for you to draw that out a little bit more of, you know, what are the values, institutions, practices, behaviors that are distinctive of Latino culture? And how does that impact your understanding of faith? Great question. You know, again, I've I've worked hard to understand this because I'm third generation, but I have so many relatives who are first generation and family members who come from that particular category. And so what I've had to learn, one of the practices is that communication in the first generation world is indirect. And and in the world I live in, it's it's direct. So over in my world, I, you know, I don't need to see you. I just need to hear you. Your words mean everything to me. In the first generation world, it's not just your words. It's how were you holding your hands when you spoke to me? Were you even looking at me when you spoke to me? All these indirect communication messages affirm what your mouth is saying, affirm your words, or, or really contradict and, and so when I was a pastor at uh, First Mexican Baptist in Dallas, um, sometimes speaking to folks, if I had my arms crossed, they would say, well, why is the pastor mad? <laughs> and I wasn't mad, but I had to rethink how I communicated. That's a practice to the first generation. The other thing is, as a third generation person, and all my friends who are not third generation, English speakers, grew up in this country, et cetera, we refer to each other by first name. I'm Gus. He's John, he's David, et cetera, Jonathan, et cetera. But with the first generation folks, that doesn't work. You have to show respect to a pastor and you have to call him Pastor Gus or Dr. Reyes because titles are very, very important. Formality is very, very important. So when an English speaking pastor, senior pastor of a church refers to his mission pastor as Jose and says, Jose, why don't you come and close the worship tonight in prayer? Uh, he's giving him a real honor and he's blessing him. But with the first generation community, they're saying, why is he disrespecting our pastor by not refer referring to him as pastor? Well, that's a practice that, that you know, now again, this is not brain surgery, but these are practical ways of how to get along, how to bring people closer to the gospel, closer to the family of faith, or how to push them away. And, and so it's even significant in recruiting. Um Third generation families and most families in America will say to you, well, my daughter, my daughter's name is Andrea. My daughter, Andrea, will go to college wherever she wants to go. And that's that's a practice. That's most people do that. But with first generation, it's a family decision. The family makes that decision. So so universities, institutions of ac academia are sending collateral and and messaging and brochures to my daughter with me. That's fine. But when they do that to the first generation family, that practice, the, the message is you're just sending information to my daughter. You're ignoring me, the father and the mother. We're the parents. You're ignoring us. The message to us is you don't really want my daughter to go to your university. Now, it's not brain surgery. There are little you know, tweaks that the universities need to do and other institutions uh, of higher ed and, and the church uh, needs to think about in terms of how to reach that first generation Hispanic group. But um, these are you know, practical things that those of us who live in that community, we've just had to learn. And so I try to share with my friends who are non-Hispanics. I say, look, here comes a group of pastors. 
Some of them might be first generation. Some might be third, second generation. Irregardless, either call me Brother Gus or call me Brother Reyes or Dr. Reyes or Pastor Reyes, but do not refer to me by last first name. If we're alone, you can call me Gus. I'll call you Stan, What you know, John, whatever. But when it comes to these pastors, they will misunderstand. They will receive an indirect message that you are not sending. Wow, that is so helpful because we often think about culture in these very broad and abstract terms, you know, certain values, but you really brought it down to very concrete practices, Yes, which you say it's not brain surgery, but it's actually really complicated if you're <laughs> having to cue up not only actual language, like translating the words or using language that is understandable, but you know, nonverbal cues that we take for granted. Um, right. I mean, it's just really complicated. It's significant. And, and, and the potential for misunderstanding. Huge. Of generations. It's, it's massive. So when it comes to Christian witness and our faith, I imagine this is really a significant issue if we're going to build bridges in multi-ethnic contexts. You know, you you describe a situation in which uh, perhaps a Caucasian lead pastor is inviting a, a guest preacher, but he thinks it's wonderful to affirm correct familiarity, right, um, and and friendship and depth of mutual commitment to life together. Right. But in fact, something opposite may have just been communicated. That's right. That's um, right. Okay. So, you know, that's a pretty daunting thing that you're describing. Um, so let's explore this a little bit. What, what would it take for us in an increasingly diverse multi-ethnic country and church? What, what kind of attitudes do we need to have in order to be building these bridges? What kind of tips would you give us or admonition or maybe even challenge as we think about how to engage with one another across these differences? Well, I think Paul said it best. I become all things for all people that some might be saved. And that should be a mantra. And so whoever we are, whether you're a 501, whether you're a corporate 500, whether you're an academic university, uh, whether you're a pastor of a, of a large church, mega church, whatever, the question is, how will you translate yourself to become like Paul? How will you humble yourself to learn these other, these other languages and cultures? Maybe you don't learn the language. Uh, what I've said to pastors is, we don't speak any Spanish. I said, listen, all you need to do is just memorize your favorite verse in Spanish. And whenever you're in a Hispanic group, just say that as broken in English as you, in Spanish as you can. And they will appreciate the fact that they will know intuitively that you are reaching out to them and that you're trying to connect with them. So that's that's a that's a simple step. But it's a huge step because the people know, hey, listen, this guy's trying. And so because of the cause of Christ, because of the need that we want to share Christ with others and get them to see Christ and become disciples, that causes us to think, okay, how do I relate to these folks in a way that they understand, not in a way that I understand? And, and you know, this whole notion, I mean, I, I, do, I do a lot of uh, workshops for universities to help them understand how to um, uh, recruit, retain, and graduate Hispanic students because that's a great need today, and that's a new market for them, for many of them. And, and, but one of the things I, I kind of explain to them is this whole notion of saving face. What does that even mean? You know, and in, in our churches, we might have to think about um, we have a Hispanic pastor. Um, you, you, you know, it's our practice that you have a um, 
uh, personnel committee. And, and so they bring in that pastor and they give him a review. And he goes back, if he's first generation, he goes back home. And he says, you're not going to understand. You're not going to believe this. There were seven people in the room and they told me how bad I was doing uh, as a pastor because they're not going to hear the positive stuff. There was seven of them. He goes, I don't understand why one person, the senior pastor, couldn't just talk to me in offline and we could understand that. But, you know, now he's embarrassed and these people don't go away. And, and so and so, again, we can push people toward Christ or push them away from our church and what have you. And I just think we have a great message of good news to share with folks. And the, the great thing is that, is that our churches have much to offer. We're evangelical. We have people in our churches that would just go around because they're disciplined and they know it's important to share Christ with whomever they, they come in contact with. Could be their gardener, could be their mechanic, could be a, a, a man in line at the shopping center, et cetera. And even if they don't understand English, they'll try to share the gospel with these people who are immigrants, maybe, and who are first generation. And you know what? They listen. And this good news is for, for them huge, great news that we would have our sins forgiven, that Jesus died on the cross for us. Why didn't anybody tell me this before? <laughs> what do I have to do? You know, just receive Christ, you know? And, and so all of a sudden they're coming into our churches, uh, they're getting baptized, and we're having to figure out how do you disciple these folks who have a different culture than we do. Hmm. You've um, given us a, a, some imagination of what it means to reach out Uh to the Latino Hispanic community. Uh, I, I actually want to now flip it around and say, what is it that other communities gain when we are engaged in this kind of collaborative joint life together in Christ? So what is it that Latino believers have to contribute to churches that are predominantly white or of another ethnicity and race? It's a great question. Um, there's no question that so many of our denominations have decreased baptismal records these last few years. And uh, Latinos or the Hispanic church working together with the Caucasian or Anglo church working together, they, they become a force to, to shape a community to help um, uh, unbelievers get to know Jesus as Savior. And so they, they can share the needs of the community. For example, one need is education. Tutors, um, Hispanics can call upon the Anglo churches and say, hey, you've got math teachers and, and you've got um, English teachers and you've got folks that can really relate to our kids and the community. So they can work together to translate the culture to the community and, and vice versa so that they can work together in such a way that people are blessed with educational tutoring, et cetera, but they also get to know Christ as Savior. And all of a sudden, those churches who have not been baptizing one or two you know, for years are now baptizing 10 or 15 or 20. And because we we have families, I mean, I, I have 12, excuse me, 10 grandchildren. So we don't have small families. And so when a family comes and dad comes to know the Lord, he brings his three kids and his wife, and that's five. And they bring the, the grandma and the, the abuela and the tia. And, and I mean, it just kind of keeps growing because they're bringing, they want their whole family to know about this great news. Hmm. So I, I think the Hispanic church has much to offer. Uh, I think it also helps the church have a global perspective because in getting to know each other, they start to relate and have fellowship. They can start to say, well, you know, our family in Nicaragua is going through this situation in Guatemala, in Mexico, in different countries. They start to share about what's going on because they have a firsthand knowledge because family is still there. 
And all of a sudden, you know, most Caucasian churches that I know become concerned and they say, well, let's take a mission trip or let's send some money, et cetera, because they're, they're those kinds of people. That's what, what it is to be evangelical is to follow Christ and, and show concern for others. So all of a sudden they forge this partnership of going to different countries to make a difference. But all of a sudden that Anglo church is thinking we need to send missionaries to these countries. We need to send help and, and we need to go visit and come back, et cetera. And all of a sudden our mindset becomes more global than ever before. Hmm. It's important to have our hearts expanded that way, to, to have our hearts shaped like Christ's, you know, this, this global perspective, this desire to reach out, this desire, as, as you put it earlier, for Paul to become all things to all people, because Amen. you have really personalized these relationships. Yeah. I'm also struck by the strong emphasis on family, family dynamics. I mean, you just mentioned how it's not just one person being drawn into the church, but it's this whole family network. <laughs> and it, it strikes me that that's another incredibly important contribution of the Latino community to the life, not only of the church, but America in general. We talk so much about the breakdown of the family in America and in churches, evangelical churches included. And yet, here we have this vibrant emphasis on family within the Hispanic community um, that comes along with this understanding of honor and shame and that dimension of the Christian life, of understanding our communal responsibilities and the impacts our actions have on other people. I mean, it seems like the church would benefit greatly uh, from this infusion of perspective, this kind of corporate life together. If, Amen. It, it, yeah, I, I just think we have a moment to really, really learn from one another. And I'm so glad that we are having this conversation because it gives us so much to learn from the Hispanic community about the nature of faith in its corporate expression. You know, when it comes to um, uh, families, and what... What is the state of play in the Hispanic family? Um, I know that's a very broad brushstroke to, to be painting with, but you've described scenario in which there's first, second, third generation, the complexities of that. Uh, give us a little bit of an imagination of what are the challenges that Hispanic families are facing? That's a great question. I think... Families and churches, Hispanic churches, Spanish-speaking churches, are struggling with English. Coming out from their second-generation kids, their third-generation kids, fourth-generation kids. And so a traditionally Hispanic church that would have this Spanish service, Spanish Sunday school, Bible study, everything in Spanish, is now having to think about those kids that they have who are getting educated who prefer English. So there's this tension, this opportunity to figure out the best formula for having English and Spanish, whether they have it together or separate services. I mean, and of course, it's difficult because if you have a separate service, that means mom and dad are in Spanish service, sons and daughters are in English service. Well, that doesn't feel like family. So, you know, how do we do this? And, and then you have everybody together in one service and the preacher says something in Spanish and then somebody translate English and that's okay. But if you're bilingual, you're getting to hear the sermon twice and that can be challenging. And so, and so that, that to me is a, is a huge challenge. Uh, another challenge for the Hispanic family is I hear it a lot all the time is we're concerned that our kids are going to become Americanized. 
And, and the notion there is it's not necessarily bad, is it that we do have some liberal things happening in our country. We do have some, some concerns about, about not being so conservative. These families are conservative. And, and so um, uh, they, they will follow God's word. They will respect it. They will see it. And so they're seeing some things on TV and on radio, et cetera, that may compl- conflict with those family values. And so that's that's just a challenge, and um, you know, for them going forward, um, someone said that to understand a first generation Hispanic woman is to think about be, leave it to Beaver um, mom waking up in 1995 uh, from her generation coming into to 1995. I wouldn't even say 2022, but all the challenges that she would face coming from her generation and her culture, her culture to 1995, let us say, that's a shock system. Well, that's what the first generation Hispanic mom is going through because they came from another country. They're here, so many different new things, et cetera. But the one constant that I think we can celebrate is that God doesn't change. His word never changes. And so they can cling to that and they find that in church. And so an opportunity for church pastors to just lift up the gospel, to share about God and share about Christ and and this message of good news. Hmm. Dr. Reyes, you've um, been a longtime advocate for immigration reform, and I want to connect that to family values because so often the immigration reform discussion um, is placed within a political context, uh, and yet um, in your community, uh, it, it deals very much in its impact with Latino families. So how does our immigration system impact Latino families and what in your estimation can, should be done to fix things? Well, as you know, the immigration plan that we have in our country is broken. And so um, the greatest thing that can happen is that Congress get together where, where both sides of the aisle can win through a law where they both get credit and they can compromise and they both win. And then we can start to have an immigration policy that makes sense. Initially, I think that at minimum, we need to think about doing something for these DACA kids. Uh, I mean, they're on hold, their life's on hold. I mean, they can work, et cetera, but they're always on hold. And and they were babies, they were born here or they were brought here when they were children. And and so, you know, the the notion of punishing parents for for our children for what their parents do, I I just think that we ought to give them an opportunity to thrive in this country. And so um, keeping in mind that that we have families that still come from these other countries, we care about these folks, There's, there's some severe, dangerous things happening in these countries and that's why people would want to come and yet we want to have a border that is controlled uh, you know we want to have a right way for people to cross where people can come through and become american citizens and and be able to serve here and and, and learn here and, and live life here but the, currently we we don't have that and so um so it's difficult i meet so many uh people that are here from other countries that don't have their papers and they, they almost live an underground life where they make an income. I mean, they're thriving, they're surviving, they're hard workers, but they know that they're not right with the government. And it makes it difficult for a believer because as a believer, you want to be right with God, number one, first and foremost. Uh, so you get right with God, but how do you get right with this country? And, and there's just not a lot of options. And it's just very difficult. And then you've got children because we don't just have one child. We're going to have three or four or five children who may be born here. Uh, who uh, are DACA kids, et cetera. And so it's a very confusing time 
Uh, and then we have so many Hispanics that came through, quote unquote, the right way. They got in line, they did it the right way, and they're like they're wanting everybody to do things the right way. And so I would say we do need to have a border control. We do need to have a way to control our borders. But we also, no matter which side of the border you're on, we need to treat people with dignity. We need to show them love, Christ's love. I think we need to show the gospel with them, et cetera. But we need to have a way in our country where we can resolve these issues. It's not safe for anyone anymore uh, when it comes to crossing the border. You have all the drugs coming across and, and bad, bad actors, et cetera. And so do we want to be helpful to the world and to those needing who are living under threat? Absolutely. We just haven't figured out a way to do that. And I think the gospel compels us to, to uh, honor our government to work with it, to, to make changes that can be honoring to those uh, who are in need and those who are vulnerable. And I think that's an opportunity for us. Mm-hmm. You've really uh, challenged us to think about the human dimension uh, of these uh, political problems, challenges, uh, the impacts on children in particular, um, who through no fault of their own, um, regardless of what you may have thought about parental decisions, they they exist and they live, you know, in 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 this kind of holding pattern that you've described, and that yeah. that's really a cause for a deep concern, you know. Right, right, and you know, justice today we we have Hispanic mega churches where you could have two thousand or three thousand or five thousand or eight thousand Hispanics going to church on from Thursday to Sunday because they have multiple services um, because they've they've heard this good news. And and they want it, and 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 it's it's not being an American; it's being a Christian that that really captures their hearts. And so they want to know how to live in this country at peace with folks. But our churches, and and many, um, I mean, uh, Champion Forest Baptist Church Español in Houston, probably one of the largest Hispanic Baptist churches in the country. Uh, the pastor Ramon Medina. I mean, they, they could Medina. They could have fifteen hundred or two thousand on a given Sunday, and these are people from all over the world. And so, I, I think there's an opportunity for us to revive the church and to see all these salvations and baptisms and have a real impact in our communities. Hmm. You, you've already shifted in this kind of hopeful vision of what's happening not only in the present but even more so in the future. Um, is there anything else that excites you, brings you hope when you think about the Hispanic community of believers? Yes, I will say this. Uh, again, Hispanic folks are tend to be conservative and have conservative values. But one of the most exciting things that I'm seeing is this upward tick, this upward trend of ac- the academia, the, the academic environment. They are desirous of having Hispanic students, of having Hispanics come to their schools, and even employing them uh, to be able to have a new life, a new career and an impact, uh, to be able to translate the academic culture to first generation Hispanics that are coming in. I'm just seeing that all over the country. There at Dallas Baptist University, Howard Payne University is doing that. Um, Dr. Carlos Campo up at Ashland is doing that. So there's just so many of the universities uh, that are um, really making an effort to help give Hispanic students an opportunity to have a college degree and a master's and, and to make a difference and to make a contribution in their community. That's pretty exciting to me, the interest certainly is. Our guest on today's conversation has been Dr. Gus Reyes. I'm Walter Kim, and on behalf of us all, thank you, Dr. Reyes. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. 
Today's conversation is one of many ways we help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please sign up for our email list and visit our resource hub at nae.org.